Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called The Life of Christ, a study in the Gospel of Luke. In this series, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Thanks for joining us. I want to start this morning by asking a question I know many of you probably dread being asked, which is, how's your prayer life? Being in ministry for half my life now, honestly, I could probably count on one hand the amount of people who answer that question positively. For most of us, and I include myself in this, a question like that brings feelings of guilt or inadequacy. I mean, I can always pray more, right? I could always do better at prayer. Now, you may find it interesting, there was another group of people in the New Testament who struggled with prayer. Do you know who they are? They were Jesus' disciples. The 12 men that Jesus handpicked to spread the gospel message all around the world. These 12 people we put up on spiritual pedestals like Peter and John. They really had no idea how to pray, or at least they didn't know how to pray the way that Jesus prayed. That's why in Luke chapter 11, the text we're going to be looking at this morning, when the disciples find Jesus praying, something he often did, right? They muster up the courage to finally ask him, Lord, would you teach us to pray? Now you may find it interesting, that's the only thing recorded in scripture that the disciples actually asked Jesus to teach them. You'll find nowhere in scripture do they say, Lord, teach us to lead. Nowhere does it say, Lord, teach us to heal. Teach us to counsel. Teach us to preach. They don't even ask that. The only thing they ask him to teach them is, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, why is that? Well, I have a theory on that. If you're following on your notes, the disciple could see that Jesus' ministry, all those things I just mentioned, right? His leading, his counseling, his healing, his preaching, those things emerged out of his relationship with the Father in prayer. There was something about prayer. And his relationship with the Father. They'd been watching him for years. They'd been witnessing his ministry. It's been incredible. And they come to him one day and said, listen, we've been watching you and we see the connection between your life and your prayer life. Between what you do and who you are with the Father. Would you teach us to pray the way that you pray? Would you teach us what you know about the Father that makes you want to pray? Now, this has always blown me away when I read this text, that they would ask him this, because these were good Jewish boys. They knew how to pray, trust me. I mean, no nation had a higher ideal of prayer than the Jews did. No society placed prayer on the scale of priorities higher than the Jews did. These boys, these young men, they would have known how to pray. They would have memorized countless prayers by this time in their life. And they would have known that they were supposed to say them at certain times throughout the day. And yet, something is different about the way Jesus prays. That causes them to ask him, Lord, would you teach us how to pray that way? And I want to be taught the same thing. 
And that actually reminds me of why we're doing this series in the first place. If you're a visitor with us, let me just catch you up. Starting last January, we took a break in the summer. We have been looking at the life of Christ together, walking through the gospel of Luke. And we have been saying the whole point of this series, why are we doing this? Why spend so much time in the gospel of Luke? Well, for this reason, if you would read this up on the screen with me, this is the sentence we've been saying. Would you do it? We want to be with Jesus so we can learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Like that's our goal, to be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ in my life and in your life. And so we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus. And here's what's cool. We're going to learn from Jesus how he prayed, what he knows about prayer that can help us in our prayer life. And we're going to do that, as I mentioned, by going to Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1. So if you got your Bible, turn it to Luke 11, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, we always carry some in the seat underneath you there or in front of you. And you can find Luke 11 in that black Bible on page 725. Now, as you're turning there, I just want to say something before we turn to the text. I need to confess something to you as a church. I did not want to preach on this message today. In fact, I was very bummed and disappointed that I drew the straw that got this text. And the reason for that is, number one, I've taught on this text like six or seven times, or the the sister text is also in Matthew 6, right, where we have the Lord's Prayer. But that's not really why I was bummed. I was bummed because I actually don't like this text. Can I say that in church? There's something about this text that has always bothered me. Something has never felt right to me about the way I have been taught it, and actually, quite honestly, the way I have taught it to you in the past. But I was forced to teach it once again this week. I complained to Jeff that he got to teach on Mary and Martha. That was not fair. (laughs) But I'm grateful to God's grace Because I would have never seen what I got to see this week if it wasn't for this opportunity. So I'm excited, really excited to share with you about what God has shown me this week. And I hope maybe for some of you who have been bothered by this text in the past, it will find, you'll find it helpful as well. So let's pray now and turn to the master of prayer on what he wants us to know about prayer. Will you bow with me? Lord, teach us to pray. Your disciples asked that, and we asked that this morning. There's something about the way you pray that we need to learn. Would you show it to us this morning by your grace and by your goodness? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's look at verse 1 of Luke chapter 11. It says, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place, as he often did. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, now read it out loud there on your notes there, it says, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Now we'll pause here. Those verses, of course, are called the Lord's Prayer, right? In which Jesus gives us this amazing framework for prayer. I've taught a number of times on the Lord's Prayer. And i got to tell you, I've got nothing wrong with the Lord's Prayer. Some of you are going, good, I'm glad that's not the part that bothers him. It doesn't. I love the Lord's Prayer. 
In fact, I often, when I pray, have the framework of the Lord's Prayer in my mind when I go to God in prayer. Now, I'm using that word framework intentionally. Because as we've taught here before, the Lord's Prayer was never intended to be some sort of magic formula that we repeat back to God. It was intended to be a framework for how we can view our prayers. If you're following on your notes there, the Lord's Prayer is not a formula, but a framework for prayer. That's why some of you are like, hey, that's a little bit different in Luke than it is in Matthew, right? Like, where are those lines that I was wanting to say after your kingdom come? It's a framework. It's not a model that we're just supposed to mindlessly repeat back to God. Literally, I want this picture in your mind here. Here's a picture of a frame. That's what Jesus has given us in the Lord's Prayer, a framework for prayer. What we put in the prayer is going to be personal. It's going to be what's going on in our lives. It's going to be related to who we are and what God is doing in this world. I describe it this way there, if you're following on your notes. Generally speaking, the Lord's Prayer covers the vertical and horizontal dimensions of our lives. What am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about it covers our relationship with God, the vertical, and it covers our relationship with other human beings, the the horizontal. Everything in this prayer really is those two things going on. Your kingdom come. That's the vertical, right? Give me today my daily bread. That's this horizontal. Forgive me as I forgive others. This this relationship type of thing. There's so much richness in this Lord's Prayer. And listen to me. If what you need this morning is to learn what to pray when you pray, then I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to say, go listen to a message I gave two years ago on the Lord's Prayer where I unpack this prayer line for line, and it'll give you much more understanding of what Jesus is offering us here. It was on January 19th, 2014 in our Give, Pray, Fast series. It's not the best sermon you'll ever hear, but listen, if you want a starting point on knowing what should I even say when I go to God in prayer, that would be a great starting point for you. But I'm going to share with you, I felt compelled this week not to unpack the Lord's Prayer so much as to talk about why, why we should pray. Because I think that's what Jesus is really getting after here in the rest of this text. When they ask Jesus, teach us to pray, I don't think they're asking for some new techniques on prayer. They knew how to pray. I don't even think they were asking for some new words in prayer. Did you know that almost all of those phrases Jesus uses in the Lord's Prayer would have been familiar to the disciples? They would have prayed very similar things, all except for one word in that prayer. Can you guess which one it is? And can you guess which one piqued the disciples' interest the most? It's the very first word. Father. The word Abba. Dearest Father. No Jew would refer to God in that kind of a relational manner. And yet when they saw Jesus pray, they noticed that every time he prayed except once recorded in Scripture, when he's quoting Psalm 22, he refers to God as Father. That's what they want to know about. That's the relationship they're interested in learning. Lord, teach us what you know about the Father that makes you love to pray and go to him in prayer. And Jesus does that in the verses that follow. He does it by giving this parable that starts in verse 5. A parable is just a story that has a spiritual meaning, right? Another meaning behind it. 
And it's this parable and the interpretation of this parable that has always bothered me. I've never liked it. And I didn't want to teach it. But why don't we read it together and I'll explain why. It says, Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't give up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of your friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity or persistence, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I ask, say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. This parable is intended to help us to want to pray more. Does it do that for you? It never did for me. Let me explain why. I always thought that the lesson of this parable is that it was about us. That we were to be like that annoying neighbor and be persistent in bringing our prayer requests to God. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with persistence in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says to pray continuously, but the idea I thought and I taught that this parable was suggesting is that the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Just as the neighbor is persistent, so as Christians we are to be persistent in our request to the Father. In a sense, then, prayer is like a spiritual crowbar where we try to pry open the hands of God. If we just do it enough, you know, if I just knock enough, if I just seek enough, if I just ask enough, eventually God's hands will open up to my requests. Maybe part of the reason this is what we think is because if you're a parent in here, you know this actually works sometimes. (laughs) Can I get an amen? Dad, can we have this? Dad, can we have this? Dad, can we? Fine. Right? Now listen, I would find ways to soften that in my own mind and even when I would teach it here. But what if I told you that that is not actually the lesson of this parable at all? What if I told you this parable is not about us in the least bit? It has nothing to do with our persistence in prayer. What if I told you that instead this parable has everything to do with the Father? And it's exactly because of who the Father is that Jesus loves to pray. And he invites us, his disciples, to love it as well. What am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about a complete misinterpretation by Western thinkers of this text based on the translation of one word. Now, we're going to get to that word, but before we do there, I'm just going to remind some of us. The Bible was written where? Where was the context? It was the Middle East, right? Jesus lived in Israel, These stories took place in a Middle Eastern context and then we come to them as Westerners and we have our own perspectives on what certain things mean and certain things say. And so what I'm going to say to you right now is we need to set some of our Western preconceptions aside as we look at this text 
and we need to step into the shoes of the culture in which it was taught, okay? So we're going to get really nerdy here for about 10 or 15 minutes. I hope that's okay with you. I promise you there is going to be a point at the end of all this, but are you okay with going a little bit in depth here with some cultural stuff? I'm going to make five observations that are really important for us to understand this text. The first one is that verses 5 and 7, 5 through 7, Jesus is asking a question, not making a statement. If you're following, Jesus is asking a question, not making a statement. I don't know why most English translations don't bring that out better. It should read, which of you, not suppose one of you. Suppose one of you is what the NIV says, right? No, it should say, which of you at midnight receives a guest who needs some food and you go to a friend and you ask for three loaves of bread and you're told to go away? The tone behind this, which we can't get, right, is can you imagine this scenario? Can you imagine this situation with your neighbor coming to your house asking for some, something and your neighbor says, no, go away, the kids and I are in bed. Can you imagine that? Well, that leads to the second observation, and this is important. Culturally speaking, if you're following, the assumed answer is no one can imagine this scenario. No one can imagine this scenario. No Middle Easterner could ever imagine hearing from another person in their village, go away. I don't want to get up and help you. Now, in the West, we can imagine this, can't we? That's why we build six-foot-tall fences. We are a private, individualized society. But listen, in the Middle East, it's impossible to imagine this scenario. Listen to how Daryl Johnson describes it. He says, I've tested this out. I spent time in the Middle East. I tested it out in Jordan, Lebanon, and Armenia, and Israel. In the Philippines, I asked people, can you imagine this kind of scenario? And the uniform answer was no, it's impossible. I checked it out in Beijing, where I taught some students from Africa. In an African setting, it's impossible. I tested it out with my Armenian neighbors in Glendale, California. It's culturally impossible. We have to read this story from the context in which it comes. Now, I talked to a lady in our church who comes from more of a Middle Eastern context this week just to make sure I was on the right track here, and she confirmed, yeah, this is impossible to imagine anybody turning away one of their neighbors in their village who needed help with hospitality. And that really leads to the third observation. The reason this is impossible is because of some key cultural values at work here. If you're following in the Middle East, there are two key cultural values. Hospitality, that should sound very familiar, and the avoidance of shame. Avoidance of shame. Those are two huge values, and they work their way out in this parable in a number of ways. For instance, hospitality demands that if you had a guest that you were to provide a large meal for that guest. In fact, so large that it would be way more than the guest could possibly eat. Some of you have experienced this if you've gone on a mission trip, right? You show up at somebody's house and there is like this table full of food and you're like, surely they're inviting the entire church to this dinner. But no, it's just for you. Why? Because that is the cultural norm. To be hospitable, to provide more for the guests than they could possibly eat. You actually see this in the Bible in a couple different places. Let me give you one example. You remember when God shows up to visit Abraham in the form of the three, the three people? Abraham's like, stay for dinner. 
We'll cook up something for you. I just want you to see in Genesis 18 what they decide to cook up for three guests. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Pause. You want to know how much three seahs is? 36 pounds for three, three guys. Well, that's not enough. Then he ran off to the herd and selected the choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk in the calf and, that had been prepared and set it before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. An entire lamb and 36 pounds of bread for three guests. Why? Hospitality. Hospitality. It's a cultural Difference. Listen, that is not a Western way of thinking for us at all, is it? Unless you're at the Golden Corral. <laughs> we would think, oh, well, that's a waste of food. No, it's a cultural difference we have to understand. Another part of this observation is that the guest who has come to Mr. A's house, that's what I'm going to call him, actually is the guest of the entire village. Not just the one house. In other words, everyone in the village is obligated it's, a, it's an understanding that we will be hospitable to whenever we have a guest, no matter whose house that guest is staying at. Another factor going on here is that the man only asked for three loaves of bread, which is nothing. In reality, he's probably just asking for the utensils for their meal because in that context, again, they would have made a big bowl of stew or something like that. And they would have used bread to dip into the stool. So he's just coming to this neighbor asking for the utensils for this meal. So he's either got the meal prepared or he's going to go to other people in the village and say, hey, do you have any cucumbers? Hey, you have any potatoes? We have to show hospitality to this guest at my house. And the last point I want you to know about this one observation is that the man inside the house, we'll call him Mr. B, he knows everything I just told you. He knows he needs to be a part of the village's attempt to bring hospitality to the guest of Mr. A. That leads to the fourth observation. And this is the one that totally transformed my view on this text in a good way. It's the mistranslation of a word in verse 8. It's the Greek word anadian. Anadian, which is usually translated in English as persistence. Or some of your versions might have shameless audacity. But here's what I discovered this week, because this is where I started, it just started to bug me. That word didn't have that meaning, meaning until the third century AD. If you're following on your notes there, it's not persistence, but avoidance of shame. Literally, avoidance of shame. In fact, some of you, if you're using your own Bibles, you probably have a little footnote next to that word shameless audacity or maybe persistence that should take you down to the bottom of your Bibles there. Look at that. What does it say? It says it can also mean to preserve his good name. Do you have that? That's what it should really be translated as. In the Middle Eastern culture, shame is a negative quality. Now listen, avoiding shame is considered a positive thing. Everyone would do whatever they could do to avoid bringing shame on themselves. Now, I'm not talking about shame in the sense we use it as Westerners, like I'm not good enough. There's something fundamentally wrong with me. I'm talking about the unwillingness to lose face, to sully my name, right? Shame in the sense of I'm not going to damage my reputation. They view that as a positive 
thing. Friends, if you travel anywhere in an Eastern context today, you will see this is still at work. We, as Westerners, live more out of a sense of guilt. But Easterners live more out of a sense of avoidance of shame. In fact, we prayed for Craig and Darcy Cody earlier in the service, who we interviewed here last week. They serve in China. And Pastor Brian and I got a chance to go visit them. And I'll never forget, we were with a a woman there who was kind of our tour guide. And we started talking to her and asking her personal questions. And we found out that her kids live 2,000 miles away from her. They're being raised by their grandparents. And you could tell this was just eating this woman up. She desperately missed her kids, but she had moved to Beijing in order to make a better life for them. So we asked her because in our context as Westerners, right, like I'm, I would start feeling guilty about that. I'm feeling guilty about leaving my kids with, my, with their grandparents 2,000 miles away. And so we asked her, why don't you just go back? Find a job in that city and work there. And she made this interesting gesture. She went like this. I couldn't do that. We're like, wait, well, what does that mean? She goes, oh, I would lose face. I would be an object of of ridicule if I went back uh, to that context. Like, that is so foreign of a concept to us, right? Like, we feel guilty leaving our kids in that situation. She wants to avoid shame. I'll give you another example here. According to one author, if you go to a birthday party in the Philippines, the person who is being celebrated would never open their gifts in front of the guests, ever. Why? Because if I give you a gift and you don't like it, I will see the look on your face, right? Thanks, Aunt B, for the ugly sweater. And that will shame you, and that will shame me. And so they take their gifts, and they open them up in the privacy of their own homes. Anadian means the avoidance of shame at all costs. Well, if it means that, why do we translate it as Westerners as persistence? Well, there's two reasons. First, we can't get our mind around the fact that avoiding shame is actually a positive thing. Saving face, right? Honoring my name, my family's name. But the second thing is, is because we can't understand that, we can't understand how this applies to the man who is asking for bread. And so we change it to persistence, right? Like, why would he need to avoid shame in asking for bread? There's nothing wrong with that. And that leads to the fifth observation. I hope you're still with me. I hope you trust me. I still have a point to all this, which is that Anadian does not refer to Mr. A at all. It refers to Mr. B who is being asked for the bread. Listen, if the word anadia means persistence, this parable does teach that if we just persist long enough, like that annoying neighbor, God will eventually relent and he'll open up the door. But if you're following, this parable is about the man in the house, not the neighbor. It's not about the knocking neighbor. It's about the fact that there is something that goes beyond friendship and love in a Middle Eastern context. And that is a person's name or his reputation. This man will not get up because of friendship, but he will get up. He will get up because he will avoid shame at all costs. He is unwilling to damage his reputation. He will not lose face. He will not wake up in the morning and have the villagers come to him and say, you didn't get up and offer hospitality to our guest? And so I'm suggesting, verse 8 should read, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you bread because of friendship, but listen, because of his desire, 
to avoid shame or his desire to preserve his good name or because he will not lose face. He will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Lord, would you teach us to pray? Lord teaches them the Lord's Prayer and then he teaches this parable and it's not about us who ask. It's not about annoying God or prying open his hands. This parable is about the God who always gets up and honors his name. This parable is the parable of the shameless father. He is the one without shame. He will never shame his name. He will never damage his reputation. He will always get up when we come to him in prayer and give us everything we need. The father has many names, but the name above every other name is Yahweh. I am who I am that he revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. That is a relational name. It is a covenantal name, and God always honors that name. Even when we dishonor his name, he will always honor his name. I'll give you an example of this. This is fascinating. When you start learning about how much God was jealous for his name, look at Ezekiel 36 here. Therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord, that's the name, says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. The Father will never, ever shame his name. He will never allow it to be shamed. And here's the kicker. Here's what Jesus wants his disciples and us to understand about prayer. God has placed his name on the hearts of his people. If his name is I am, our names as Christians is you are. You are who you are because I am who I am. That is the name that we have been given, and that is the name to whom we go to in prayer. This parable answers the disciples' requests. It gives us wonderful assurance in prayer, right? When we come to the Father on prayer, we can always count on him, always count on him to honor his name. He will always give us exactly what we need. He will always get up and answer the door for you. He will always provide. He is the one who will never shame his name. So that's why Jesus says, keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Not because that will eventually wear God down. But because we can be bold with the one who has written his name on our hearts. You are who you are because I am who I am. We can come to him and know he will answer. Now, if that's not enough reason to pray, Jesus finishes in verses 11 through 13 with a kind of mini parable about the father. Verse 11, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Again, what is the assumed answer here? None of them. No father's going to do that. Now read verse 13 out loud on your notes there. 
If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I mean, get the point here. Jesus compares human fathers who are imperfect but want the best for their kids with his heavenly Father who is perfect and wants the best for his kids. If you're following, when we pray, we pray to a good father. And as a good father, listen, he doesn't promise that new Mercedes or a trip to the Caribbean. His promise to all of us as his children is he will give what is best for his children. He will always give us what is good. You don't even need to be a parent to understand this, right? I'm not always going to give my kids what they want. Like if they ask me to have candy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Even if they like are annoying and beg and beg and beg and beg and are persistent. I'm not going to do that. Because I want what is best for my children and they need to eat a healthy breakfast and a healthy lunch and a healthy dinner. Jesus' promise to his disciples is not if you ask God long enough, he'll give you whatever you want. His promise is you can come to the Father and know because he is going to honor his name that he will give you exactly what you need. He is a good father. In other words, let's stop thinking about this as prying something from our father's hands. But we're going to the one who knows our hearts better than we even know them ourselves. And his promise towards us is that I have a heart for you of generous love. More perfect than any perfect father you have ever imagined. So that means sometimes I won't answer your request the way you ask for it. And aren't you glad sometimes? Some of the things I've asked God for in the past. I'm like, oh, thanks for not answering that one. But I will always answer your prayer. I will always answer your prayer. Even though it may not be what you desired or expected. Even if it's a refusal, it is an answer. Here it is of love. From a good father. Take Paul's example, right? We use this often. Paul prayed persistently. That the thorn in his flesh would be removed. Nothing wrong with praying persistently. And yet his father had something better in mind for him. His father wanted him to know that my grace is sufficient for you. I needed this this week, friends. I just got back from Barnes. Some of you know I have a kidney disease. I go every three months. And the news wasn't great. And I know some of you have health conditions. Should we be persistent in praying for God to heal us in those times? Yes. But I will not be healed because I finally annoy God enough that he will open up his hands and say, fine, you reached the magic number. I will be healed if my good father, who will never shame his name, who is the name above every other name, decides as one of his children that is the thing I need most. And if it isn't, I can trust him. Because he is the shameless father. And he is the good father. I don't know about you, 
but that makes me want to pray. That gives me rest and peace and confidence and joy. The promise of this text, I hope you don't miss it, is that Jesus teaches that prayer isn't a should, it's a get to. We pray if you're following because we have a good father who will honor his name. If you need to hear this this morning, I hope you hear it. He will always get up for you. He will always answer the door. And he will always give you exactly what you need. Let's pray. Father, it's one thing to hear this, to know this in our heads. It's another thing to trust it. But we trust you. We trust that you are who you say you are. That you are the name above every other name and you have written that name on our hearts for those of us who know you. You are our Father. And you are good. So as we take just a few moments now to meditate, to consider, to pray, to think about these words, would you open up our hearts to see you as Jesus sees you, to know you as he knows you, and to pray to you as he prayed to you. Meet us in this time.